Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 27, selected verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you will say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Jesus we meet in the Gospels has a particular knack for disorienting and disturbing those who are listening to him. He did it, as we noted a few weeks ago, with his very first sermon, Blessed are the poor and the meek and the persecuted. But he was only just getting started. Over and over, he says things that do not fit our understanding. Follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Sell what you have, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. These sayings of Jesus and many others confuse, confound, disrupt, and disturb. Why is this? Why would the Son of God, love incarnate, our comforter, healer, protector, savior, want to nudge us, sometimes shove us, into a place of disorientation when all we want 
is security and stability. Perhaps it is because Jesus knows that the world God longs for us to inhabit is infinitely more expansive than the world we imagine for ourselves. Jesus, like most observant Jews of his time, had a deep and abiding knowledge of the Psalms, that prayer book of his people that describes a world where God personally attends to God's children with the fierce love of a parent, a world where God offers shelter and protection from those who might harm us, but a world where God also expects us to love our enemies because they too belong to God. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests that every psalm can be put into one of three categories. There are psalms of orientation, psalms that are confident of who God is and who we are. And then there are psalms of disorientation, psalms of lament and despair from those who have lost their sense of identity, both their own and God's. And then psalms of reorientation. The psalms of reorientation, like Psalm 27 that we heard today, propose a new way of understanding God and ourselves and our world. But in order to understand the psalms of reorientation, we must first accept that biblical truth that there can be no reorientation without going through a period of disorientation. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation, that is the pattern of every life of faith. And our constant movement among these three states is part of what makes the Psalms so relevant and meaningful to us because we recognize ourselves and our experiences in these ancient prayers. We go through times when we feel like life is settled and calm and we have it together. And then something happens to us or for us or with us and everything turns upside down. And for a period we stagger and struggle and stumble along until we find our place again. But it's a place we never could have found without that season of feeling lost. Psalm 27 illustrates what happens when we move through a season of disorientation and then arrive at a whole new reality. It's not a return to where we started. It's not a going back to normal. It's something much more. That place of reorientation is a place where we can see more clearly all that is, all that was, and all that can be. It's a place we inhabit when we become more comfortable with paradox and shades of gray. One of my favorite children's books is In God's Name by Sandy Sasso. At the beginning of the book, we meet lots of different people, each of whom has their own name for God. And it's a name based on what that person knows and understands about the world. So the farmer calls God source of life, and the soldier calls God maker of peace, and the doctor calls God healer, 
And the young parents call God mother or father. And the lonely child calls God friend. This state correlates to a place of orientation. I know what I know, and I understand and interpret the world and God based on my personal experiences. But as in real life, that place of orientation isn't sustainable because we are communal creatures, and we can only live within a bubble of our own experiences and understanding for so long before an event or an encounter with someone pierces it and throws our worldview into question. In the book, as all these different people interact and share their understandings of God, they discover that they have no common understanding, no capacity for recognizing that God might be bigger than just one person's name for God. So, as the story goes, each person said, my name for God is best, and none of them listened to each other. This part of the story correlates to a place of disorientation. As you can imagine, finding out that other people call God by something different than what we call God causes discomfort, even conflict. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there. It ends when one day all these people who call God by different names come together around a big circular lake. As they look into the water, it is like looking into a mirror, God's mirror. In the water, each person sees their own face, but they also see the faces of all the other people together in the water's reflection. And the story concludes, at that moment, the people knew that all their names for God were good. All at once, all together, they called God one. In Psalm 27, we encounter a person of faith who remembers the pain and discomfort of disorientation, but who is holding on to the promise of God's love and presence. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I shall be confident. This psalmist has moved beyond simplistic categories of experiences as good or bad, sacred or secular. They see that everything now, the best and worst of life, belongs to God and is held together by God. And so the psalmist writes, One thing I asked of the Lord, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will set me high on a rock. These are the words of someone whose perspective has shifted who can now hold together the paradox that God is all things to all people and that God is one. That God loves us, which doesn't mean that God prevents our suffering, but rather that God is present with us when we suffer. That God uses and transforms every experience we have. That God is constantly working within us and among us even when it feels like things are falling apart.
As a student of Scripture, Jesus knows this, and it is perhaps why his words and actions so often confuse and confound, disrupt, and disturb. He knows that disorientation is ultimately a good and necessary thing, for it is a part of the journey towards transformation, which ends not at a place, but in a state of mind. And without going through disorientation, we simply cannot experience or recognize the expansiveness of God. In the passage we heard today from the Gospel of Luke, which begins with the Pharisees warning Jesus that Herod wants to kill him and ends with Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, we witness a moment of disorientation for Jesus himself. Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish faith, the dwelling place of God. For Jesus to go there is inevitable, and yet Jerusalem, this place whose very name means city of peace, has rarely been a place of peace. Instead, it has been a place where the priests, who serve the institution of the temple with its hierarchy and rules, have often clashed with the prophets, those who call out the institution and its leaders for their hypocrisy and waywardness. Like the great Hebrew prophets, Jesus has a tendency to push people to confront hard questions, to reckon with how they have made God in their own image, and to repent of how they have hurt others in God's name. In Jerusalem, it is this tendency to create disorientation that will ultimately lead to Jesus' death, for he will prove too much a threat to the people in power. And yet, Jerusalem is also the place Jesus will offer his followers a glimpse of the reorientation that awaits them. For there, Jesus and his disciples will gather around a table for their last supper together, God's table, where they will see themselves in the faces of each person sitting there, the faithful, the questioning, the confused, the betrayer, and know that they are one. Jerusalem is the place where those same disciples will watch with horror as their beloved teacher is arrested and killed, and then view with wonder the empty tomb. In this moment, when we are watching with horror as war unfolds, in this time where we can't help but have a profound sense of disorientation and helplessness, Jesus' lament over Jerusalem feels like our lament for our world and the people in it who would wield power as a weapon of oppression and violence. But even in his despair over the city of peace, Jerusalem, which will be the place of his betrayal, torture, and death, Jesus trusts it will also be a place of resurrection. In 2010, a young couple named Molly and John Chester decided to give up their life in the city of Los Angeles to transform 200 acres of arid land into a farm, 
one with all kinds of animals and a wide variety of food. Molly was a chef, and she wanted to be able to grow in one place everything she needed for her cooking. The catch was they wanted to do it in a traditional way without the use of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. For the first few years of their adventure, they had a mentor and a guide, a farmer named Alan, who shared with them all his wisdom and advised them that cultivating a vast diversity of animal and plant life is what would create a thriving farm with rich soil and abundant produce. But before their vision had come to fruition, Alan died of cancer. And the first crisis they faced after Alan died felt like it would be the end of the farm. They had planted more than 70 varieties of stone fruit trees, and initially they were beginning to blossom, but then they were plagued by an infestation of snails that ate through the leaves and kept the trees from bearing fruit. As John tried to figure out a non-toxic solution, things went from bad to worse when a terrible drought transformed their retention pond, which was home to nearly 100 ducks, into the perfect place for a toxic algae bloom. They took the ducks out of the pond to clear the algae and only then discovered that these ducks regarded snails as a delicacy. They ate over 90,000 of them in a week. And then they turned those snails into fertilizer, which nourished the soil for the fruit trees. This was just one example of many moments of disorientation on the farm, which ultimately provided the solution to a problem that at first seemed unsolvable. Again and again, John and Molly discovered that if they took the time to carefully observe the problems that arose in light of the whole farm, a solution would often present itself. What if that's the way God works in our lives, using times of confusion and disorientation to reveal solutions which up to that point we had not been able to see? Lent is a good season to take a long look at the challenges we face to, as the psalmist says, be strong. Let your heart take courage, wait on the Lord. Lent is an opportunity to really see the challenges in our lives, in our communities, in our world, to look at them as Jesus looked at Jerusalem, to lament over them, to talk about them, to pray about them, and then to move toward them, as difficult as that may be. Instead of seeing disruption and disorder as something to avoid, imagine what might happen if we see disorientation as an opportunity to witness God at work in our lives. This Lent, may we find the patience and the courage to move toward disorientation, trusting that the Savior we follow invites us on this journey that ultimately leads to new life and a deeper understanding of God's expansive love for all the world. Amen.